this Lord's Day, I wanted to add a coda to the last four sermons that I've preached about the body of Christ and discuss the matter of Jesus in our midst. Jesus in our midst. The Lord's table is a commemoration of the sacrifice of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus on the cross where he saved his people from their sin. Jesus often spoke in spiritual metaphors which the people misunderstood. He taught them that he is the bread of life sent down from heaven. And if a man will eat of that bread, he will have everlasting life. Christ is the spiritual bread and living water that brings eternal life to all who partake of it. And he made it clear we partake of his body and blood spiritually by believing upon his promises and trusting in his offering for our sins. We believers joyfully feast upon the Lord Jesus' body and blood spiritually and partake of the bread and wine at the Lord's table to remind us of what Jesus did for us on the cross and to acknowledge publicly that his literal physical body slain and bloodshed is all our hope and life and joy forever. The Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for corrupting the celebration of the Lord's table. All they were doing was bringing their own food to eat at the church and leaving out those poor believers who had nothing to bring. They wouldn't even wait for one another to start their feasting. Like the crowds who rejected Jesus' teaching on these things, the Corinthian Christians were confounding eating literal physical food with spiritual feasting upon Christ. The Lord's table is supposed to express our complete dependence for our everlasting life upon Jesus' literal sacrifice at Calvary. It is not a physical meal for sustenance in this life, but rather a symbolic picture of who and what we have placed our trust in, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and His sacrifice as God's Lamb in our place and for our crimes. Christ designated His table as a remembrance of Himself. And He did it just hours before He delivered Himself up to be crucified and slain to save us. It is therefore a most solemn, critical, and joyous ordinance that must be treated carefully, reverently, and with full knowledge of what Christ meant it to mean. It was the very last meal that Jesus ate with his beloved disciples before he was slain in his love for us. The Lord's table does not save anybody. It does not forgive sin. Rather, it pictures that one time only when Jesus offered up himself and saved all his people from their sin. Note also that when Jesus gave thanks for that bread and wine at the first Lord's table, he alone knew what it truly meant. He pictured his body mutilated, his blood shed in a cruel death, and yet he gave thanks for it. How much love Jesus showed in doing such a thing. Our hearts must express a congruent love when we partake of the symbols around Christ's table. Love for Jesus, love for his sacrifice, and an expression of full faith and allegiance unto Christ alone as our only hope. 
The apostle then adds that as often as we eat that bread and drink that cup, we are preaching the Lord's death till he comes back again. It could as well be read as a commandment. When you eat the bread and drink the cup around the Lord's table, preach Christ's death. Paul then warns against profanely or unworthily partaking of the Lord's table for any purpose other than celebrating the offering of Jesus to save us. If we are not thinking upon, displaying, rejoicing upon, and preaching the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for us on the cross, we will be judged by God if we partake of this table. If you are not relying solely upon the body and blood of Jesus, sacrificed physically on the cross to take away your sins and redeem you unto God, you must not partake. If you're partaking because you want to fit in with the rest of the believers present, or if you're daydreaming and not rejoicing in the offering of Jesus, you should not partake. If you come to the service not to celebrate what Jesus did by dying for your crimes, but because you enjoy the fellowship and the potluck supper, you ought not to partake of the Lord's table. We must eat of that bread and drink of that cup with the full and grateful knowledge that they point to Jesus' very flesh and blood by which he made a sacrifice in our place and for our sins on the cross. The dignity of the Lord's Supper reflects upon our love for the person of Christ who is present with us spiritually. Anything we do to degrade or misapprehend or confuse the purpose of Christ's Supper is an insult against Christ himself. We ought to partake of that supper with joyful hearts and unending gladness. Now, as I said, a coda to what had been said previously, we find mention of it in Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter at verse 29, after the Lord Jesus institutes his Lord's Supper and explains the meaning of the symbols of the bread and the wine. He said this, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we've mentioned many times Christ's withdrawing himself from the celebratory wine which we partake of each Lord's day, that he would not drink of this celebratory wine until all his loved ones are safely home in the kingdom of God. When all the people are gathered together who he has bought with his sacrifice, with his blood, then and only then will he physically partake of this celebratory wine. Now you remember the incidents of the vinegar at the cross. They tried to give Christ vinegar mixed with gall, which is a olden times scheme for deadening of pain so that he might be able to withstand the crucifixion. Perhaps it also had another purpose, which was to thereby drag out the process of the death of the poor man to make it even more lengthy and more horrible. But for whatever reason, Christ would not have his mind clouded as he died by any such mind-numbing drug. And so it says he refused to partake of it. And later it says that they offered him vinegar to drink on a sponge and that he received it. Now, 
We don't know whether this vinegar was vinegar from grapes or whether it was some other sort of vinegar. You can make vinegar from apples and from other fruit, pretty much from anything that has sugar in it. You can make it from grain. But we should all know, or I should know as a chemist, that vinegar's main constituent is acetic acid. And acetic acid is derived from alcohol, ethyl alcohol that is, It's the double oxidation product for the technically minded. But the point is that vinegar has all the joy taken out of it, doesn't it? There isn't any joy in drinking vinegar. Now, it might have a good taste on a salad, maybe. People choke it down to treat their arthritis and their gout and their high blood pressure and their sugar diabetes, but nobody really knows whether it really works for any of those things. Whatever it is, it has all the joy taken out of it. There isn't any rejoicing induced by the drinking of vinegar, is there? And so the Lord Jesus is not going to drink the celebratory wine until all of his people are safe on the other side. Jesus expands on this in Luke's gospel. We read this morning, Luke 22, Consider what he says after he describes his suffering and ordains the feast of the Lord's Supper. It's very clear that the disciples were preoccupied with a bunch of other matters like who was going to betray Christ and who would be the greatest in the kingdom. At verse 24, we read this. There was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth. Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I wonder if you've noticed this squabbling amongst the disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Christ has already delivered this Lord's Supper and said, this bread is my body that's broken for you, this cup is my blood that's shed for the remission of sins, and they're all worried about their own self-aggrandizement and so forth. You know, it reminds us that he had already opened up this whole supper at verse 15 when he said unto them, with desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then and I'll not eat of this Passover again until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this is a very solemn dinner occasion. It is freighted with all sorts of significance and meaning. And their hearts ought to have been focused on what the Lord Jesus was telling them and teaching them and trying to demonstrate to them in pictorial form. But no, they were all worried about who was going to be the greatest amongst them. But note then at verse 27, the tail end, I am among you as he that serveth. 
Christ is the one that took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Christ is the one that took the cup and blessed it and gave it to them. You see, he is assuming upon himself the position of the one that served the table while the disciples ate the food that he provided. This, of course, harkens back to what Christ said. The last time that they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, you remember? Remember he said that even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And herein we see the greater significance of what Christ said, I am among you as he did serve. Christ is serving up the bread of life in pictorial form at the Lord's table, but in an absolute sense at the cross. He is giving his people his flesh and his blood upon which all of our life depends. It is more important than the physical bread that we eat or the food we partake of or the water that we drink in this life. Those only extend our physical life and existence, don't they? But the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus, literally given on the cross to save us from our sin, is our only hope of an eternal life in glory with the one who came to minister unto us. He has indeed sacrificed himself for us and he serves up to us at the table a spiritual feast that we might feed upon him. He is both the one who serves us and the one upon whom we feed spiritually unto everlasting life. And this reminds us that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you remember that Melchizedek, what Melchizedek did when Abraham and his allies met him after the victory that Abraham had when he recovered Lot and his friend. You remember that Melchizedek met Abraham. And what did he do? He gave him and his entourage bread and wine. Melchizedek gave unto Abraham bread and wine. And that's a curious thing, isn't it? Because Aaron didn't give the penitent sinners that came to him bread and wine, did he? Well, we offered up their sacrifices, but here Christ is fulfilling and will fulfill to the utmost the image of Melchizedek as the prior and greater high priest that he feeds his people. Not just physical bread, which is what the wicked crowds that chased after him wanted, but rather the rich spiritual food of the Lord Jesus' body and blood himself. And then notice at verse 28, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I will appoint you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Christ is informing his disciples that they will reign with him when he enters into that kingdom, and he will give of that kingdom unto his people. Remember he told them in another place, 
rejoice or take heart or be of good cheer. It is God the Father's will to give unto you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. It is God the Father's will to give unto you the kingdom. But notice the promise, ye shall eat and drink at my table. Pointing to a feast in the future. And is there any reason to believe this feast is not a real, literal feast? Some people of various eschatological persuasions will insist on spiritualizing this particular point. Brother Gill is one of them. He had a very strange system of analyzing and viewing the future things. And sometimes he tended to spiritualize things that didn't need to be spiritualized at all. It could be taken quite literally. And I'm not sure why that was. It may have been that severe Puritan remnants that some people perhaps incorrectly think that they didn't believe in any feasting or rejoicing. But Gill had a lot to say about this promise of Jesus to drink no more wine until the kingdom of God should come. He said these things. The design of this expression, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine, is to show that his stay would be very short. The cup he had just drunk of was the last he should drink with them. He should drink no more wine at the Passover. He had kept the last in which now of right was to cease. Nor in the Lord's Supper, for though it was to continue to his second coming, he would be no more present at it corporally, only spiritually. The design of the phrase, as before observed, is to signify his speedy departure from his disciples. The allusion is to a usage at the Passover that when after the fourth cup, they tasted of nothing else all that night except water. And so Christ declares that he would drink no more, not only on that night, but never after. And then he says, until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, when all the elect of God are gathered in and have been presented to Christ by himself, he will then deliver up the kingdom to the Father. And God shall be all in all, taken from 1 Corinthians 15. And then the kingdom of the Father will take place here mentioned, and which is no other than the ultimate glory, so called because it is of the Father's preparing and giving, and in which he will reign, that is, Christ will reign and dwell in the saints with him, to all eternity, in this state Christ will drink new wine, which pictures the joys and glories of heaven, the best wine, which is reserved to the last, which is sometimes signified by a feast, of which wine is principal part. By sitting down as at a table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and expressed by wine because of its refreshing and exhilarating nature, and in God's presence, is fullness of joy, and by new wine, because those joys are the most excellent, because they are always new and never change, they are pleasures forevermore. To drink hereof denotes the full enjoyment of them, which Christ as man and mediator and his people with him shall be possessed of. And this will be social. Christ and his true disciples shall be together and drink this new wine together. Enjoy the same glory and felicity in the highest measure and degree that they are capable of, and which society therein will yield a mutual pleasure to each other, as the words here suggest. The Jews 
often express the joys of the world to come by such phrases. They make mention of the wine of the world to come. A spiritual drink, they say, in the last days, which is called the world to come. And so they explain after this manner, neither hath the eye seen, O God. This is the wine, they say, which is kept in the grapes from the six days of the creation, of which they often speak in their writings. There will be celebratory feasts with Jesus in glory. One of them is described in the passage we read out of Revelation 19. And you remember that this passage follows hard on after the destruction of the great harlot of Babylon. There is a rejoicing by the saints of the judgment and the utter destruction that God has wrought against that wicked entity or enterprise. The saints rejoice at Revelation 19 verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments, that is God's. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Now you know a lot of people would complain that that's not very Christian. But the Lord's people will rejoice over the destruction of the wicked and of their getting their just deserts, and of God's power and righteousness being upheld, displayed, and avenged before their very eyes. When the smoke of destruction comes upon and emanates from, rises from God's final judgment against the great whore of Babylon, And it says the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And then at verse 6 it says, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now the scriptures teach us in Ephesians 5, for example, that the church of Christ is his bride, and that he has perfected his people and will perfect us so that he may present us without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And he does this by the laying down of his life for his bride, the church. And this is his proof of his love towards us. And of course, Paul is exhorting husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church. That there is to be a sacrifice, a giving, a doing of what is truly best for the beloved one. And that's what Christ has done when he died on the cross to save his people. He is loving his bride, the church. And now here, is this great marriage supper. His wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So there is this adornment of Christ's bride with the beautiful white linens which we know from Isaiah 
is the great robe of righteousness and the garment of salvation, which God has clothed us and which are of the manufacture of the Lord Jesus himself. For he was made sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so there is a coming feast in which we will celebrate the lamb who was slain and we will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ as our beautiful garment. Not by our own virtues, not by our own glory and beauty, but rather by the beauty and glory of the bridegroom. The bridegroom of our heart, as the hymn writer put it. But notice also that the scriptures tell us that Jesus is with us here today. Remember what he said in Matthew 18 at verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The Lord Jesus is here watching us celebrate his dying to save us. Can you imagine if we had a sense of that? He is here with us spiritually, watching us, observing us. He beholds us as we celebrate. Is dying to save us. This fact, if truly known by the Lord's people, would regulate our behavior at his table, wouldn't it? Strip away all the foolishness and the flippancy and the selfishness and the distractions. You know, the poor disciples, they were with the Lord physically present when they first celebrated the Lord's table, weren't they? And yet they hardly knew what the meaning of it was. They were so distracted by all their personal hang-ups and desires and fears that they don't appear to have really tuned into what Jesus said about the bread and the wine, did they? You know, it's heart-rending to partake of a feast celebrating the death of the giver of that feast. There is something heartbreaking about it, isn't there? To imagine that we should celebrate the death of Christ with Christ in our midst, observing what we do. I'm not saying that it makes us sad, but rather that there is a joyfulness to it. Here is the one we celebrate. You remember when they had the feast to celebrate Lazarus' resurrection. You know, they were celebrating someone who had died and was alive again. And they were celebrating the one who had raised him from the dead, the Lord Jesus. But now here the Lord is ordaining this feast of celebration and promising in another place that he will be with us in spirit. And so at this table, in the presence of the sacrifice who gave himself, we celebrate. It's the offering that he made. Such is his love toward us that what he did to save us must be celebrated. It must be rejoiced over. Rejoiced over in his presence so that he can see it, an outward expression of the love we have in our hearts. You know, if Jesus had never risen from the grave, it would be almost impossible for us to celebrate his dying for us because of grief, wouldn't it? But praise God, it is true 
think about it, that the Lord's people have never, ever had to celebrate Christ's death without the Savior being alive in attendance with them, have we? Never. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, he was still alive physically, wasn't he? By the next time the disciples partook of it, he was risen again and forever will be alive, as he told the Apostle John in Revelation 1. I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive again forevermore. Amen. And I've got the keys of hell and of death. So we have never had to celebrate the death of Christ. No saint has ever had to celebrate the death of Christ without Christ being alive and present either physically or spiritually to observe and approve of our celebration. You know, we love the words of that hymn by Robert Chapman. With Jesus in our midst, we gather around the board. Though many, we are one in Christ, one body in the Lord. Our sins were laid on him when bruised on Calvary. With Christ, we died and rose again and sit with him on high. Faith eats the bread of life and drinks the living wine. Thus we in love together knit on Jesus' breast recline. Soon shall the night be gone, and we with Jesus reign. The marriage supper of the Lamb shall banish all our pain. Or as another modern hymn writer put it, soon and very soon we're going to see the King. Praise God. Let's give thanks for the Lord's Supper. And let's remember the warning of Paul that if we're not trusting in Jesus, then we ought not to partake. We ought to just sit and watch and learn from those of us who have trusted in Jesus and have a right to eat of this celebratory feast unto the praise and honor and glory of the one who died to save us. Let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice in your goodness in providing us a lamb to be slain in our place. When no other lamb would do, Christ the heavenly lamb bore our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. We thank you that you provided us your son, to be your lamb, to take away our sin, and that he was perfectly obedient, he was spotless and without blemish, and that you received his offering and were satisfied with it, and by it we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. We've trusted in him. Oh, help us to trust in him in a continuing way, and not to ever in any way lean on our own obedience, our own good deeds, our own intentions or thoughts or feelings, but rather only on the work of Christ. We thank you for this bread that pictures his body that was cruelly slain to save us and help us to be truly grateful and help us to partake of this feast with the knowledge that Jesus is here to watch and to observe our remembrance of him in love. We pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you.
Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus poured out to make an atonement for us. And the scriptures tell us after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and sing number 38 in the black book. Behold the glories of the Lamb. To thee, O Lamb, to thee once slain, be endless blessings paid. Salvation, glory, joy remain forever on thy head. Number 38.